You're listening to the EM Ottawa Podcast. Yes, welcome to the first ever pilot episode of the EM Ottawa Podcast. The EM stands for Emergency Medicine. So if you don't want to hear about emergency medicine, pearls, tips, tricks, and appraisals, you should uh, just maybe turn around. Go listen to something else. Go listen to Mark Marin or one of those murder podcasts or something. I should probably introduce myself. My name is Dr. Rajiv Thavanathan. I am one of the fifth-year residents in the EM program at the University of Ottawa. And I am going to be one of your hosts on this brand new show. In fact, today I'm going to be the primary host. Tiff is going to be joining us on some later episodes, but today it's mainly just me. So let's go. So our guest expert on the show today is Dr. Jim Yang. He is also a PGY-5 resident in the emergency medicine program here at the University of Ottawa. He's got an interest in resuscitation, and he's just an all-around bright guy. He gave an excellent grand rounds to our department about some of the best high-impact trials that came out in the last year or so in emergency medicine. So we thought we'd invite him on the show today to talk about not one, but two of those trials and how they might inform your practice in the ED. So Jim, I often find the consultation process for GI bleeds to be a little bit difficult. I never know how hard to lean on the consultants to get a scope done urgently for our sick upper GI bleed patients. Now, it sounds like you have some evidence that might help answer this question. Yeah, Rajiv. The paper I want to present to everyone today is a paper published by Lau in April of 2020 in the New England Journal of Medicine, looking at that exact question. So the timing of endoscopy uh, for acute upper GI bleeding. Okay, so what was it all about? So this was a single center RCT done in Hong Kong. They enrolled 516 patients. The patient population they were interested in were patients with overt signs of upper GI bleeding, as evidenced by hematemesis or melina. They looked at a very specific subset of high-risk patients, those with a Glasgow Blatchford score of greater than 12. Jim, I know you're studying for your Royal College exam. Maybe later I'll share with you my mnemonic for the Glasgow Blatchford score. But is 12 a, is that a high score? Is that a low score? Are these people sick or not sick? Patients with a score greater than 12 are really, really sick. So we know that a Glasgow Blatchford score greater than 1 suggests that the patient is at risk for needing intervention. That scores greater than 6 traditionally predicted the need for intervention, and that scores greater than 12 are associated with increased mortality. So these are amongst the sickest upper GI bleed patients. Okay, so what did they actually do in this study? So the patients randomized to the urgent endoscopy group had their endoscopy performed within 6 hours of their GI consult versus the early endoscopy group, which had their endoscopies performed between 6 and 24 hours after GI consult. Practically, this means that the patients in the urgent endoscopy group were scoped overnight if they came in in the evening, and those in the early endoscopy group were scoped the next morning. Gotcha. And aside from the scope, what kind of other treatments did they get? So all patients in this study received standardized care for upper GI bleeding, which consisted of a high-dose PPI, and if they had suspected variceal bleeding, they got vasoactive medications such as octreotide as well as IV antibiotics for SBP prophylaxis. Okay, so that's pretty much what I would do in real life. So what were the exclusion criteria? Like, who are the patients that these results would not apply to? So they excluded patients who were in hypotensive shock, who failed to stabilize after initial resuscitation, or who were moribund from terminal illness. So essentially, patients that were too sick to be randomized were those who were very unlikely to benefit. Okay, so their Glasgow Blatchford score is up, but they're not actually in frank hypotensive shock. Okay, what about variceal bleeds? Did they include those in this study? 
So patients with variceal bleeds were certainly included in this study, making up about 7-9% to of this study. However, the predominant pathology here was peptic ulcer bleeding, which made up about 60%. Uh, this may have something to do with the fact that this was an Asian study where you, that population sees much higher rates of peptic ulcer disease. Okay, I think I got it. So what did they actually find? So the authors didn't find any difference in their primary outcome between the groups, which was all-cause mortality within 30 days. Even amongst the secondary outcomes, there appeared to be no difference in further bleeding, the amount of blood transfusions, the rates of surgery or embolization, or hospital IC length of stay. Oh, wow. So there's like really no difference at all. Because intuitively, you would think earlier would be better no matter what the situation. What's the advantage in waiting? Beyond waking up your endoscopist and calling them in the middle of the night, there are also uh, physiologic advantages of delayed endoscopy. So uh, speaking to endoscopists, urgent endoscopy in these patients is always more technically challenging. By waiting, you give the uh, medications more time to act, which improves visibility and results in less unnecessary intervention and more targeted intervention. All in all, this sounds like a pretty well-done trial. Do you have any reservations about this study? So because of the low uh, prevalence of variceal bleeds in this population, uh, I would urge caution in implying these, uh, the results of this study to variceal bleeds, which we know is a much higher risk population. And secondly, it's important to remember that this study excluded patients uh, who are in shock. So it's really important to get our GI colleagues or endoscopists involved early for those uh, very sick patients. Keep in mind that the results of this study really only apply if you work in a center where you have quick access to an endoscopist. If I were practicing in the community, I wouldn't sit on these patients for 24 hours. We know that upper GI bleed patients can decompensate quickly. And so with these high-risk patients, I would start a discussion with GI early regarding transferring for endoscopy. Right. So it's not like you have to delay them for the full 24 hours. It's just that you don't rush them within the first six. Absolutely. It's important to adequately resuscitate these sick patients. Just as we would in a patient that we're intubating, it's important that we optimize these patients for endoscopy and give our endoscopists their best chance for success. Okay, James, so let's say next shift I'm working, I got this 60-year-old guy, he's got known ulcer disease, and he shows up with, okay, Melina and a bit of presyncope lightheadedness. He's tacky at 115, his pressure's around 90. Again, a little bit of early blood work comes back, his hemoglobin's 52, and we work out that his Blatchford score is 13. When do you think I should do endoscopy for this patient? So if your patient is responding to your initial resuscitation, it's still important to get you're in touch with your endoscopist early, but I would be okay if they chose to wait till the next morning to scope him. However, it's important to remember that these upper GI patients can decompensate quickly. So if they had any hemodynamic instability or signs of continuing bleeding, I would call my endoscopist back uh, sooner to advocate for earlier scope. All right, so Jimberly. Let's switch gears here. I know that therapeutic hypothermia after ROSC is probably a good thing. Some version of it is endorsed by multiple guidelines in Canada, but I always get tripped up on, like, is this for all rhythms? Is it just for cardiac etiologies, or is it all cause? And what temperature should I be aiming for? Can you tell us what's all the fuss about? Like, why should I care about this at all? So we know that anoxic brain injury is associated with increased mortality and morbidity. We also know that fever is bad, worsening ischemic brain injury. So the theory behind hyperthermia is that it reduces free radicals, cerebral O2 consumption, and ultimately reduces ischemic injury. 
So this hasn't been without controversy, though, right? Because I think the initial trials that came out in the early 2000s, they were small RCTs, but they showed this like huge difference in favorable neurological outcomes for hypothermia for shockable rhythms. This changed when Nielsen came along in 2013 with the famed TTM trial, a large RCT that showed that for all rhythms, even when they divided up the subgroups by shockable or non-shockable, there was really no difference between 33 and 36 degrees. Now, we're not going to rehash the whole paper, but it was enough that a lot of the organizations like the AHA, the ERC, and the CCS all changed their temperature thresholds, you know, something closer to 32 to 36. So, given all that context, what was this trial trying to show? So, Hyperion was a multicenter RCT done in 25 ICUs in France. They enrolled 581 patients and looked at adults with ROSC following in-hospital or out-of-hospital cardiac arrest with non-shockable rhythm due to any cause. And these patients had to be comatose after ROSC, so they had to have a GCS of less than 8. And what kind of patients were they not looking at? This study excluded patients with poor prognostic indicators. They excluded patients in which there was more than 10 minutes from collapse to initiation of CPR, where there was more than 60 minutes from initiation of CPR to ROSC, and those who are in refractory shock despite vasopressors. Okay, that makes sense. So what did they actually do? So they randomized patients to either a period of hypothermia, in which they targeted a temperature of 33 degrees Celsius, versus normal thermia, where they targeted a temperature of 37 degrees Celsius. The hypothermia group was cooled after randomization and maintained at 33 degrees Celsius for 24 hours, and then slowly warmed and had fever avoided for the subsequent 24 hours. Okay, so they had some sort of like active hands-on temperature management for 48 hours, basically. Did the other group get the same thing? So not quite, Rajiv. The normal thermia group was cooled if they needed to be and had maintenance of normal thermia, so avoidance of fever for 48 hours. So outcomes in a cardiac arrest trial can always get a little dicey. What specifically were they looking at in this particular trial? Their primary outcome was survival with favorable neurologic outcome, but they also had notable secondary outcomes, which included mortality, length of mechanical ventilation, length of ICU stay, and adverse events. Okay, you are killing me with the suspense here. What were the results? Ultimately, hypothermia was associated with improved survival with favorable neurologic outcome, with 10% of patients meeting the primary outcome in the hypothermia group, and just under 6% meeting that primary outcome in the normal thermia group. However, when they're looking at their secondary outcomes, there was no difference in overall mortality, no difference in the duration of mechanical ventilation, ICU length of stay, or adverse events. So that's actually a pretty big difference, 4.5% in favorable neurological outcome. That's a, that's a difficult, you know, medium-term, 90-day patient-oriented outcome to, to, to show a real difference in. Is there some other difference in how they were treated that might explain this? So the hypothermia group actually had targeted temperature management for longer than the normal thermia group. The normal thermia group had avoidance of fever for 48 hours, whereas the hypothermia group had induction of hypothermia and maintenance for 24 hours, a period of rewarming, and then a maintenance of normal thermia for another 24 hours. So in total, they had between 56 and 64 hours of targeted temperature management. So I should point out that a substantial portion of the patients in the normal thermia group were not actually normal thermic. Huh? Well, no, that's, uh, that's the whole point. It's, it's, it's in the name, normal thermic. They're, they're supposed to have a normal temperature. Uh, what, uh, what happened? Unfortunately, although the target for the normal thermia group was 37 degrees Celsius, patients randomized to this group developed fevers greater than 38 degrees Celsius throughout the TTM period. 
Uh, yeah, that's that's less than ideal. So after all this, what's your takeaway from the Hyperion trial? The bottom line here is that fever is bad. All patients who are comatose following ROS should be cool to prevent fever. Now, the temperature that you end up at isn't important as long as you avoid fever. However, the results of this study seem to suggest that a target of 37 just doesn't leave enough room for error. So we're kind of left where we were after the TTM trial. We know that 37 is probably too high to target. doesn't give us any wiggle room. But this trial didn't really tell us whether 33 or 36 is better. All right, so rubber meets the road. Jim, next time you get a ROSC patient, shockable, non-shockable, doesn't matter, what temperature are you going to target? I would target a temperature of 32 to 36 degrees Celsius, which is in keeping with recommendations from the American Heart Association and the European Resuscitation Council. At the end of the day, our most important priority is avoidance of fever. So is it fair to say that maybe this isn't like a literally practice-changing paper? It just kind of underlines the things we know we're already supposed to do well. Yeah, absolutely. And this is reflected in the fact that none of these guiding organizations have changed any recommendations as a result of this publication of this paper. So some people in emergency medicine are a little bit skittish about starting cooling in the ED. And there's lots of reasons for that. Like people say it's too resource intensive. You know, it's somebody else's problem. Like let the intensivist or the cardiologist or the, you know, the receiving center deal with that. And people are like a little bit nervous about adverse events. I think one that commonly gets cited is bleeding. What's your take on all of that? We should initiate cooling in all ROS patients in the ED. Now, this doesn't have to be complex. It can be as simple as putting a bladder temperature probe in and ice packs in the groin and the axilla. With regards to the adverse events associated with cooling, there have been no published differences in the rates of adverse events between hypothermia and normal thermia in any of the published RCTs. So there you have it. Jim, thank you for bringing a depth of clarity and nuance to a couple of really complicated topics and some interesting trials I really appreciate it. My pleasure, Rajiv. So that's it for episode one. Thanks to Jim for spending some time with us. You can follow him on Twitter at Dr. Jim Yang. That's Y-A-N-G. Too bad that Yang Gang was already taken. If you want to check out more great FOMED content from the group here in Ottawa, please go to emottawablog.com. Thanks to Yusang for providing our music. That's him you heard on the intro, this outro, and all those little bits in between. If you've got something you want to hear about on the show, or if you've got a case or a topic you want to talk about yourself, please get in touch. You can always follow and message me on Twitter, at Rajiv Thava, that's R-A-J-I-V-T-H-A-V-A. Can't wait to see you again on the next episode. and nuance to a really complicated topic. My pleasure, Rajiv. My pleasure, Rajiv. My pleasure, Rajiv. (laughs) My pleasure, Rajiv. The second one was the good one. That's the one I'm going to cut and use. (laughs)